Well, back in 1997, there was a movie release called Paradise Row. And though it wasn't a commercial success, it was a powerful telling of a true story that happened during World War II. The film is about hundreds of English, American, Dutch, and Australian women and children who fled Singapore in a British destroyer when the Japanese invaded during World War II. Their ship was only a couple hours out of port when it was attacked and sunk by Japanese warplanes. And all of who survived were taken to a prisoner of war camp on the mainland. And from the moment that these ladies arrived, these poor women were treated in unbelievably brutal ways by their captors. They were beaten, they were starved, they were forced to endure back-breaking labor, manual labor from daylight until dusk in that hot tropical climate. The food that they were fed was a little bit, maybe one step above garbage, and the captors provided them with almost no medical supplies under their harsh treatment, and nearly half of the camp eventually died. Morale was unbelievably very low because the women were sick, they were weak, and they were hungry, and sadly, they had lost the hope of ever being rescued. Well, one of the prisoners was a Christian missionary to China, and she felt led to start, of all things, a vocal orchestra. But instead of instruments, because they didn't have them, the women would use their voices to sing the orchestral scores. And so they grabbed any scrap piece of paper that they could find, and drawing off of their memories, they wrote musical scores to some great classical works that they had heard before. Then they put together a choir, and they secretly arranged some uh, rehearsals since they were forbidden to meet together for any purpose, including church services. And I wanna show you a clip from this movie on the night of their first unannounced performance. And you'll notice as soon as the women began to gather, the Japanese soldiers headed toward them with the intent of forcibly disbanding them. They usually did this by beating the women ruthlessly with long rods or sticks, literally breaking up any potential gathering. But as the women began to sing, something happened. I want you to take a look at this clip. Well, as you can see, music had a profound effect. First, it stopped those cruel soldiers dead in their tracks. And from that point on, they said that the guards tended to treat the women with a little bit more respect. Their singing also affected the women themselves because it gave them courage, it gave them purpose, it gave them a reason for continuing to hang on. Their music even helped those, as you could see, who were lying in the makeshift hospital who were sick with dysentery and, and malaria. They say that they performed about 30 more such works during their years that they were in prison and all of their handwritten musical stores, scores have been preserved. Their singing was a momentary, uh, it, it, it was a source of momentary beauty and, and pleasure in the midst of all of the, the ugliness and the pain and the anguish that they were going through. And it underscores the truth that singing can indeed be a very powerful thing. God can use it to touch us, to move us, to speak to us in ways that, that mere words cannot. And the reason that I bring this up is because as today, as we continue in our series in the book of Acts, we're gonna look at an incredible story found in chapter 16. It records a time when like these women, Paul and Silas were unfairly arrested and beaten and imprisoned. And in response to the pain and the, the humiliation that they were, they were forced to endure, they began to sing. They sang songs of praises to God. And God used their singing in the most powerful way. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to, to Acts chapter 16. If you don't, all the scriptures will be up on the screen behind me and you can follow along. While you're doing that, let me take a couple minutes to set the stage for you. Last week, we talked about Paul's second missionary journey and how God and how he and his fellow missionary team wanted to go share the gospel in Asia. 
but God had closed the door for that to happen. And then prompted by a vision of a man from Macedonia, they went through the only door that God had opened for them and they set out for the continent of Europe. In Acts 16, verse 11, it says that that when they set sail on the Aegean Sea, they ran a straight course. The original Greek used here is a nautical term for sailing before the wind. What that meant was there was no need for them to tack back and forth to catch the wind because God provided a wind that blew them straight toward Europe and the people of Macedonia. So God not only opened the door, but he gently blew them right through it. And uh, this confirms what I said last week, that if God calls us to do something, he will providentially open all the doors needed. He will provide for what it is that he's called us to do. He will always fill the sails, as it were, to make it possible for us to do what he's asked us to do. And so with God's help, these four missionaries sailed quickly into the port city of Neapolis. And upon their arrival, they walked about 10 miles inland to the city of Philippi, a very important Roman town in Macedonia. Philippi was a very loyal Roman colony because the townspeople had earned their citizenship by helping Caesar Augustus defeat his enemies, Brutus and Cassius in 42 BC. Since then, it evolved into a very Roman city that was populated with retired Roman soldiers and their families. And with them came so many of the customs and even the architecture of Rome itself. So back then, Romans kind of viewed Philippi as a sort of a more quiet little Rome, if you will. In any case, its citizens were proud and they were thankful Romans who valued their Roman roots. Why, you might ask? Well, because Caesar Augustus rewarded the faithful residents of Philippi with a lifelong tax exemption. How would you like to receive one of those? Be kind of nice, wouldn't it? Think of what that did to the the values and people wanting to go and live in Philippi. Well, Paul and his three companions walked into this very Roman city and they were, as far as we know, the first followers of Jesus Christ ever to be seen in that part of the world. Now, as you may know from our study in the book of Acts, Paul's usual tactic for starting a church was to go first to the synagogue. You may also remember that last week I told you this is why he had Timothy circumcised because if he hadn't, Timothy would not have been allowed to go into the synagogues. So when they arrived in Philippi, they inquired and discovered that there was no synagogue. This indicated that there weren't many Jews that lived there because in order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 men. But Saul also understood and knew Jewish customs. And if any Jews did live there, they would gather near the river for prayer on the Sabbath. So he went down to the, to the banks of the, near, the nearby Ganges River and he found several women who were gathered for this very purpose. And their leader, was a woman named Lydia who earned her living by selling purple cloth. And this particular color of cloth was very expensive to make, but she apparently had no shortage of customers because Lydia was a wealthy woman. So much so that she she owned a very large house and it was big enough to provide space for this new church start, which they did. So with all that in mind, let's look at what happens next. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 16, verse 16 through 40, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. 
They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into a prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, do not harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in this house. And that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. In this scripture, Luke informs us that this girl is demon possessed. And this demon gave this girl the power and the ability to predict the future with a degree of accuracy in his predictions. Of course, there was a fee for her services, which provided her owners not just a handsome source of income, but a steady ongoing source of income. Because just like today, inquiring minds will pay any amount of money to try to discover what their future holds, or should I say, what someone else's take is on their future. Now, I hope this goes without saying, church, but I feel led to tell you that a fortune teller is one of the most fraudulent activities out there. And yet, get this, Americans spend over two and a quarter billion dollars annually on these and other psychic services. But when you came across someone like this Philippian girl who offers accurate details in telling the future and others like her who claim to talk to the dead, well, then you can be rest assured that it is a demonic-powered activity going on. And listen, church, any form of psychic predictions or astrology is divination. It is not of God, and you should, you should stay far away from it. Because if you are dabbling in that kind of a thing, you are dealing with the occult. And then you are dealing with demonic influences. And this is something the scriptures tell us to stay away from. Bible commentator Merrill Unger writes these words about this story. The girl told the truth, receiving her knowledge from demons. The incident showed how Satan frequently parades as an angel of light, especially under the guise of alleged religiosity. Well, the demon inspired this slave girl to say that Paul and his companions were servants of the Most High God. And you may think to yourself, well, hey, look at that. Look at all that free advertising. That's awesome. But I want to remind you that this is something that repeatedly happened during Jesus' ministry on earth. If you'll remember, people possessed with demons would, would follow him, and the demons would shout out who Jesus was. Well, this demon had, had this girl say that these men are proclaiming to you a way of salvation. In other words, in fear, this demon was saying, you have a way to salvation and we have a way to salvation. No need to fight, let's join forces. But you and I both know that that is never going to happen. Well, this girl proclaimed these statements about Paul day after day. And finally, Paul was so annoyed with her incessant ploy in an attempt to poison their ministry that he said to the Spirit in verse 18, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And it says at that moment, 
the spirit left her. Now, I want to note a couple of things here. First of all, this girl was not a Christian. And I, and I want to also point out that the Bible teaches us that Christians cannot be possessed by demons. I've had people ask me that more times than you could imagine. There, there are no examples in all of the scriptures of Christians being indwelt by the devil or by his minions. There are examples, however, of Christians sinning and yielding to, to Satan's temptations, but not being possessed. And of course, that other part goes on to this day. Often we yield to Satan's temptations. But let me remind you something. As a Christian, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of the living God. And in 1 John 4, 4, it says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. You see, no demon can abide the omnipotent presence of Almighty God. No way. And furthermore, and even more importantly, the Spirit of God will in no way abide with any kind of demonic spirit. They are contrary to each other, the Bible says. They are polar opposites. You have the light of God and you have the darkness of Satan and they are diametrically opposed to one another. I also want you to note Paul's method in casting out this demon. First, he was not intimidated. He was in full control. He knew that as a Christian, he had nothing to fear. Secondly, he spoke directly to the demon and not the girl who was possessed. Thirdly, he didn't ask anything. He commanded it to come out of her, and in an instant, it was gone. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He spoke, and the demon fled. And I got to tell you something. I've seen videotapes of, of famous evangelists holding on conversations with demonic spirits, and I'm going, why? Is this for our entertainment pleasure? What is the purpose? You tell that thing to flee. That's what the power of God says to do. There's no need to talk about it. There's no need to talk to it. Ask him where he came from or what his plans are for lunch. You cast that demon out. Doesn't take multiple sessions like you've seen in maybe movies before. He didn't need to have a conversation. The battle had already been won because it was done in God's strength, and it wasn't done in man's strength. Well, her healing, of course it was a wonderful thing. Imagine how she felt to be freed from that demonic control. So Paul and the others are, are rejoicing, but not everybody was happy about this miracle. And obviously angered by, greatly angered I might add, by their sudden economic downfall, the slave girl's greedy masters incited the crowd to riot. And these proud Romans, they, they wrongfully accused Paul and Silas of throwing the city into an uproar. But also in their accusation, they inferred that this was typical behavior for any Jew, which was a foolish thing to say because there were hardly any Jews in that town. Well, Paul and Silas were immediately seized they were viciously beaten with rods and they were thrown deep into a Roman dungeon with their feet fastened by stocks. And understand something, this beating was no little thing because they, they received the same kind of flogging that Jesus did. Perhaps you remember that scene from the Passion of the Christ where it depicted the first part of Jesus' beating. That's when those two cruel Roman soldiers came up and they had those flexible rods and they just started whacking Jesus across the back and it was leaving welts across his back. If you remember that scene, this is what these guys went through. And then after this beating, Paul and Silas were, were thrown into prison deep within the jail. Their legs were secured in stocks so they couldn't move, which I'm sure further added to their discomfort. Now, perhaps there are people in this room today joining us who have spent some time behind bars before, and you can much more uh, accurately relate to this situation than perhaps I can. But for those of you, including myself, who haven't, I am certain that most of us have at some point in our life felt imprisoned by hard times. I mean, every one of us has endured heartache 
in one form or the other. I'm talking about tough times, not of our own making, that we could not escape, that we could not avoid. And I know this is true because I know you. I mean, as your pastor, I am well acquainted with some of the burdens that you have carried and some of the burdens that you are even carrying now because you share them with me. I also know that the Bible teaches us that even for Christians, trials are a regular part of life. They're gonna happen, we are not exempt from them. You can't get away from this truth. In fact, Job 5, 7 says, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. I mean, just like the people who desperately wanna get out of prison but can't, we often wanna be freed up from our hardships, don't we? But we can't. It's part and parcel to, to, to living in this fallen world. And I say this to help you understand that, that there is truth here in this text that we need to clearly understand. The record of, of Paul and Silas' response to their imprisonment teaches us things that you and I need to know if we face the inevitable heartaches and tribulations of life. So let's get into this. How can we learn from this example of them singing while in prison? What can this particular story teach you and I this morning? Well, first, this text tells us that to sing in hard times, we must be able to see things that others don't. I want you to think about it. Paul and Silas were falsely accused. They were beaten within an inch of their lives. They were thrown into a dark, cold prison cell. And as they sat there with their legs in stock, I'm sure that their muscles cramped, and I'm sure that every breath reminded them of their cracked ribs and their bruised kidneys from the beating they had just taken. I imagine that blood was still flowing freely down their backs because their wounds had not been treated. So these guys were growing weaker and weaker and colder and colder. And as that cold began to seep into their bones, they must have listened to the rats that you know infest places like that, scurrying around in the darkness, probably attracted by the blood on their backs. But instead of cursing their guards, instead of groaning about the treatment that they had received that was unjust, like the rest of the prison population tends to do, the two began to pray out loud. And please understand, the original Greek words used here would not be translated as prayers of petition. You know, not God get me out of here kind of prayers. No, this, these would be translated as prayers of, of praise to God. Like, God, you are so good to us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, oh God. Can you imagine praying like that after experiencing what they just went through? The truth is, I don't think most of us could. Because the truth is, many of our prayers are only selfish petitions with no praise on our lips whatsoever. Often what we do is we, we call up God and all we wanna do is tell him how bad things are. And our prayers kind of become like just one long pity party where we remind ourselves of how bad life is. And church, I just gotta say, if that's the way that you pray, it's no wonder that many times you feel worse after you pray than before you did. Prayer is only complete. Prayer is only meaningful where somewhere in there, you've got to give praise and you've got to give glory and you've got to give majesty to God. Remember when Jesus gave his followers a prayer template in order to follow? Well, it began and it ended with praise. Jesus said we should begin by saying something like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said it should, it should probably end with something like this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory and the praise forever. Well, Paul and Silas obviously followed Jesus' teachings because in spite of their situation, their prayers were filled with praise. And as they did this, as they praised the Lord, 
He did the same thing for them that he did for King David. When David said in Psalm 43, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. So these two men began to sing, not sad songs, but joyful songs, songs of praise to our Lord. And in doing so, they turned that dank, dark cell into a sanctuary. So how could they do this? How were they able to sing songs of praise under such fair, unfair circumstances? Well, first understand these two men were mature enough to know that when a Christian is at the center of God's will, they are never under any kind of a circumstance. They're not under their circumstances. We have a loving heavenly father who is sovereign over every circumstance of life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and these two had enough confidence in God to know that he was still in control and that he could and he would use this painful, dark situation for their good and ultimately for his glory. This reminds me of a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon who once said, it is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. Paul expressed this same kind of confidence in God once again later in his life when he was imprisoned in Rome. He wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12 and he said that even in the midst of all of this time of suffering, he wrote, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul believed that God's sovereign power and knowledge was absolutely absolute. He also had faith that God's love for him was infinite. It was unconditional. And those beliefs, that's what enabled Paul and Silas to be able to see things that other people can't. You see, Paul and Silas had seeing hearts. In other words, they looked at their situation, not just through their physical eyes, but through the eyes of their heart, which is a way of saying that they looked at their beating and their imprisonment through the eyes of faith. Those two missionaries didn't let their circumstances dictate their attitude. No, they made a conscious choice to trust in the Lord, to praise God, to have faith in God, no matter how bad things appeared or no matter how bad things felt to them. In High Point, if we are to, to sing during those times when we feel imprisoned by hardship, we must make the same kind of choice in our attitude. Viktor Frankl was imprisoned in the Nazi concentration camps during World War II. And of course, he was well acquainted with suffering and deprivation and that went on inside of those death camps because he saw life at its very worst. Over the years, he had observed and he wondered why some prisoners survived the horrors of concentration camps while others did not. And he became curious as to why that was. And in his book titled Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel shared the conclusion he came to after studying his fellow captives. And this is what he wrote. Everything can be taken from men but one thing. The last of human freedoms, the ability to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. It's a hard thing for me, and I'm sure for you as well, to conceive having a positive attitude while being a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp, isn't it? We know what went on in those camps. They saw it firsthand. But what he says goes on to show us that attitude is really a choice. It's a conscious decision we have to make. Some people choose to embrace the attitude of optimism. 
It's like the 80-year-old man who married the 24-year-old girl who financed his home on a 30-year mortgage and built it next to an elementary school and hoped that their future children would have a short distance to walk. Okay, come back in. I lost you there. But others, for a variety of reasons, choose instead a life of pessimism. They have a pessimistic perspective, like the little boy who was preparing for his test. He told his dad, I'm going to fail this test because I do not understand the material, dad. And his father said, son, you have to try harder and you have to be positive. Okay, the little boy said, I'm positive. I'm going to fail this test. (laughs) Attitude is a choice. And Paul and Silas chose to fill their sails with a steady and an ongoing trust in God. They decided to look at their situation through the eyes of optimism. Now, when I say optimism, you've got to understand something. I'm not talking about being naive. I'm not talking about wishful kind of thinking. No, for believers like Paul and Silas and his companions, optimism is based on faith. It's based on a hope that is sure and that is steadfast. It's a commitment to put our trust not in, the, in our ever-changing circumstances of life, but rather in our unchanging God, amen? James 1.17 says, who does not change like the shifting shadows. And one of the blessings of choosing this attitude One of the benefits of deciding to put our trust and our faith in God is that it enables us to notice, it enables us to see things that more pessimistic people completely overlook. Paul referred to this in 2 Corinthians when he said that people who don't put their confidence in Christ are judging by appearances. And you know what that means. We just look at what's in front of us and we make a judgment based upon what's there. And we don't look past the situation and what God is doing. We look at the surface only of a situation. Well, Paul and Silas had hearts that could see. They saw that in the midst of all of their present difficulties, they were still in the presence of God. And he was at work in their current painful and difficult situation. They believe that as Paul put it years later in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. There was a TV show many years ago I used to watch as a kid called Gomer Pyle, (laughs) USMC. I'm aging myself, aren't I? Gomer was a naive country boy from the hills of North Carolina. But his boot camp drill sergeant, Sergeant Carter, constantly yelled at him, and he put him through all kinds of tough times. When others would say things like, Gomer, Sergeant Carter is so mean to you, he's so unfair, don't you hate him for the way he's treating you? Gomer would say, oh no, Sergeant Carter is the wisest man I know. He knows everything there is to know about being a Marine. He's doing this. He's doing all this for my own good. You'll see. Gomer had confidence that Sergeant Carter, even in the midst of of all his countless push-ups and the midnight marathons that he used to make him run in full gear. One time, Sergeant Carter ordered Gomer to remove a huge pile of sand from one place to another and then move it back again. But even through that, Gomer Pyle saw something his peers missed. He saw that his superior had his best interests in mind and, 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 and that all Carter put him through was eventually going to be for his good as a Marine. We, we have to have that same kind of a faith-filled confidence in our Lord if we want to be able to sing during these tough times. We must have the confidence that opens our eyes so that we can see his loving hand at work, which isn't always seen on the surface. You have to see below the surface, even when there are times of heartache and even when there are times of great pain. So let me ask you this morning, are you being treated unfairly? Does your life seem like a prison? 
Well, if so, then hear me out. Trust God. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. He is truly Lord of all and over all and that includes trouble at school and that includes marital struggles, that, that includes stress at work, that includes sickness and it includes death itself. And if we are committed to furthering God's purposes in this world, he will even use prison type moments of life for our own good. So open the eyes of your heart, church, and sing. Here's another thing we can learn from this particular prison music. When we sing in hard times, the world notices and they wanna learn to sing along. Verse 25 says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. This was something new for these prisoners in that place. They'd never heard this kind of response to their situation ever before. So as the Greek literally states here, they listened attentively. Then when God miraculously responded by sending this earthquake and, and, and opened the doors and it released their chains, they realized that they had indeed been some very kind of special singing going on in that place. So they didn't take advantage and they didn't split out the front door or run away. Instead, they went to Paul and Silas and they asked them about their singing. And it, and, and it looked to the jailer like that they had all run away. And in desperation, he was about to pull the sword and take his own life, which is what they typically did in those days if they lost uh, prisoners because Rome was gonna have them executed anyway. But Paul was able to yell at him. He said, no, don't darm yourself. We're all here. Well, that particular lyric made the jailer want to sing along too. And so he asked life's most profitable question of the apostles, what must I do to be saved? In other words, I guess he was saying, can you teach me to sing too? Tell me what I need to do to be like you guys because I really like what I see. Ironically, he was no longer their captor. He became captive instead to what his prisoners had to offer. They were so serene, they were so calm in the middle of this tragedy and he knew that he had to have what it was that they possessed. So he listened to Paul's response to his question and he became a Christian and then apparently he urged Paul and Silas to, to share the gospel with his family as well because verse 34 says his entire family was baptized that night. So the jailer invited them into his home. The same man who had inflicted all this wounds and pain upon them washed and bandaged them and he fed them. Think of it. God truly set and prepared a table for Paul and Silas in the presence of their enemies, just like he says in Psalms. But I don't think any of this surprised Paul and the others because they had chosen to put their faith and their trust in God. And it, and it enabled them to see things that other people couldn't. They knew that they served a God who regularly performed miracles just like this one. Listen, church family, the world is listening for your and my song. They are. They're listening so that they can learn how to respond to the unfairness and the injustice going on around us. And we must realize that in the darkest times of our lives, we need to be at our best as Christians. There must be singing instead of sighing. You see, if we respond like Paul did, then all those around us, they will be asking us the same question that the jailer asked Paul. I mean, if you can sing in the middle of your heartaches, you'll find people who will be drawn to you and then you can lead them to the cross. This is one very powerful way for you to become a contagious Christian because they clearly see in you a response that is not normal at all. In fact, to them, your response is absolutely inconceivable but they wanna know 
what generates it, what it is that makes it come out of your heart. Scott, will you come forward? Help me close this down. This morning, I want to invite you to, pr- to pray and ask God if he would give us all seeing hearts. It should be our heart's cry that you and I exhibit hope and optimism even during our own personal storms of life. This is one thing that sets Christians apart from the rest. It's an inner peace that goes on even during difficulties. And that peace is based upon our hope and our understanding of who God is and how faithful that he is to each and every one of us. It's a a hope that no matter what it is that we're going through, no matter what the situation is, God has that situation under control. And in the end, all things will work out for good to those who love him and to those who trust him. And at the same time, God will receive glory through how you handled it. It's also the assurance of knowing that that no matter what happens in this short period that we call our life, it'll be all taken care of in eternity. You know, the older I get, the more I come to realize just how fast life flies by. When I was in my 20s, I never gave a thought to it. When I was in my 30s, it crossed my mind every once in a while. When I was in my 40s, I started thinking more serious about it. 50s, now that I'm 60 something, (laughs) I want you to know I'm on the lower end of that. I just want you to know that. It's a blur. It's a blur. And it's helped me in, in a good way. It's allowed me to look at things from an eternal perspective instead of just the here and now. Because I know how fast the here and now is gone, but I know eternity is gonna last forever. And if I'm in eternity in the presence of God, that's really all I've gotta worry about, right? It kind of makes everything that we deal with here seem so minuscule, and yet we get so wrapped up in it. We get so incensed when things don't go our way. It shouldn't surprise us that negativity surrounds us everywhere we go. But we should have a positive outlook on life because we are securely in God's hands. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then I hope and pray that today God has opened your eyes to see the need for you to have a savior. And that savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. God promised way back in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 29, that if you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. And if you've never made a commitment today to follow Jesus, then I urge you to seek him today. To receive salvation, the Bible says that you must believe in your heart and you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to salvation. And you speak that to him in prayer and you ask him to save you and to become the Lord of your life. So what we're gonna do this morning is first of all, go ahead and stand to your feet if you would. What we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna close this service with a song of praise. And what I want you to do as you sing this song is to sing it with confidence. I want you to sing it as true praise to your God who has been with you through thick and thin throughout your life. And I want you to sing it with confidence, especially if you are navigating through some kind of a difficulty this very day. If you do this, I guarantee you that you can lean here, leave here with those chains and that struggle being lifted from you because you have chosen to lay it in God's lap and quit carrying it around as a burden any longer. And then when you do that, you will clearly be showing the Lord how much you truly trust him in your situation. And if you're not facing a struggle this morning, then all the more reason for you to praise the Lord and be thankful to him 
as we sing together. If you want to accept Jesus this morning, this altar is open. You can do it from your seat. All you need to do is tell Jesus you believe in him. You believe he is the son of God. He came to this earth. He lived a sinless life and he died a horrific death. And the blood that he shed on that cross is the cleansing agent. It is the atoning that covers your sin and wipes it away. As the Bible say, never to be remembered. As far as the east is from the west, he will forgive you of your sin. You will be, he will become the Lord of your life. The Bible says he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness and you will become a new creation in Christ Jesus. As, I, as Anthony said this morning, this altar is always open while we sing. If you wanna to come to this altar, feel free to. But we're gonna to sing together, how great is our God. And when we're done, I will close in prayer.
heads with me. We're going to close this service in prayer. Father, I thank you for the book of Acts. Well, we've been going at this for many weeks, Lord, but there's just truth after truth and story after story of you doing amazing things. And I don't know about my congregation, Lord, but it's been a great encouragement to me. As we see the church being built the way you intended it to be, with our full trust in you, knowing that there is nothing that can come against us that will succeed. It will ultimately be thwarted by your power, Lord, that whenever you call us to do something, you will see it through. So I thank you for these living examples of you doing great things and also these great examples of having attitudes that sometimes are foreign to us that we don't understand and we don't even realize that maybe we could be that way when we can because with the Spirit of God in us, there's nothing we cannot do or accomplish. So my prayer is, Lord, that as we study this book and continue to and have studied it, that we will understand that the truths within are for us today. The Word says you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You do not change. And so we can expect the same kind of great things from you in our day and age as they did back then. My heart's cry is, Lord, that we would believe that. That we would lean upon you and trust in you and understand that there is nothing that cannot be accomplished through you and your power within us. So God, encourage us to be men and women of God who aren't afraid to share our faith and your goodness with others. And fathers, we go our separate ways today pray that your spirit would go with us, guiding and directing us, the steps we take, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, and let those conversations be designed to build people up and not tear them down. Father, I pray that we will go as shining bright lights in a very dark world, so that people will come up to us like the, like the prisoners came up to Paul and Silas and said, what is it about you? What is it that makes you sing in this darkness? What is it that makes you praise God when things are falling apart before you? That's the way you operate, God. Let us be the Paul and Silas's of our world today. The people would seek us and ask us what it is that we have, that they find attractive, that they want for their very own, and then open the door for us to share our goodness with them. Father, I pray as we go our separate ways that you would keep us safe from sickness and disease and illness. And that as we leave here, out these doors today, that we would go in your love as you've called us to. Thank you for this time together. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence in this place. Thank you, God, for the word of the Lord that we live by. And we ask all of these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.